All right, so tonight I thought we would talk about uh, just the sovereignty of God, and because uh, I, I talk about that a lot, I use that phrase a lot, but it's become quite a kind of popular as well. Um, you hear that in a lot of churches, you know, that we believe God is sovereign, but what, what, do, you, what do we mean by that? Because I think most Christians, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, but many Christians, when they, when they talk about God being sovereign, they tend to think in terms of royalty, you know, like a, the sovereign of a nation. And so they say, oh, yes, we believe God is sovereign, right? We believe in the sovereignty of God. What they mean is we believe in the kingship of God, right? God is king, and we get that. Um, but that doesn't really answer the question because then you have to ask, well, what kind of a king is he? Because, you know, you've got the king of England who has no authority whatsoever. He, he's really just a, a figurehead. Um, he's really just a figurehead and, uh, and uh, has no authority within the country. Um, I, I don't know today if there are any absolute monarchs in the world. Um, the last absolute monarch that England had probably would be before King George, before the American Revolutionary War. Um, so when we talk about, or at least in Reformed theology, let me put it that way, in Reformed theology when we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that um, uh, God has... Uh, foreordained, I'm, I'm quoting the Westminster Confession now, God has foreordained from eternity past uh, all things that come into being, right? Um, all things, he has foreordained all things that, um, that come into existence or everything that happens. Um, another way of putting that, Arthur Pink would say that, um, that when we say that God is sovereign, it means that God does what he wills when he wills, to whom he wills, and, and he answers to no one. Um, and that's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. And many Christians, when you start using that kind of language, become very concerned. Um, but when you look at what the Bible says about God, because remember, I said last week and the week before that, that the, that the two lenses through which we interpret all of Scripture is how we understand man and how we understand God. And so last week we looked at man, right? What, what, is, what are humans? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What did sin do to us? How did it uh, impact us? Um, that's important. Um, because if we're not, as A.W. Tozer said, you know, if we're not as evil as we think we are, then God is not as good as we think he is, right? So we also need to understand God then. What, what is God like? Um, you know, what is he doing up in heaven? Is he, you know, when we talked about man, I, I said there are kind of two views out there in Christianity. Man is out there, you know, either sort of floundering in his sin, you know, and uh, waiting for God to throw him a life raft, or he's, or he's floating dead in his sin, right? Um, God... Within Christianity, there are basically two views. God is either in heaven, and he's sort of, you know, on his knees, and he's pulling out his hair, and he's sort of frustrated at 
what is going on, you know, if people would just put their faith in me, my goodness, you know, the gospel is so obvious if people would just believe and if they would listen to me. Or is God sitting upon his throne and is he governing all of world history? Is he moving all of world history in the way that it should go? Um, some important passages that I think help us to really get a good picture of who God is is um, I always like to go to Isaiah first. Isaiah has a very lofty view of God. I mean, starting in chapter 6, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But I want to go to um, Isaiah 45. Um, actually, 46. Isaiah 46. And beginning in verse 8, here's what Scripture says. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. God declares. So that's, that's all of world history, right? Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, that is from way in the hoary past, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So God says, essentially what God is saying is that I always do that which I desire to do. That's what that passage is telling us. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When God decides to do something, he does it. God's will is never frustrated. God's plans are never thwarted by mankind. Um, whatever it may be. Yet oftentimes you hear, you know, Christians out there, you hear Christian preaching or teaching that, that hints at that. You know, that, that when Adam and Eve took of the apple and sinned into the world, oh, that wasn't what God wanted to happen. Well, Isaiah says that God always accomplishes what he desires. God's plan is never frustrated. When Adam and Eve bit the apple, God was not pulling out his hair, going, oh no, didn't see that coming, right? Um, here's another one. So we're looking at the sovereignty of God sort of on a high level, and then I want to bring it down to a, a micro level. But go over to Daniel now, chapter 4, and hopefully y'all are highlighting these or underlining them, because these are some good passages to, to be familiar with. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. And this is after, you know, God curses Nebuchadnezzar and basically puts him in his place by making him go a little crazy and live like a cow for a while. And then in verse 34, it says, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Listen to this. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. That is, no one can stop what God is doing. No one can move his hand away. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is some strong language. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. God does what he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants, and he answers to no one because he is truly the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the one who moves all of redemptive history. Nations rise and fall because God causes them to rise and fall. People get elected into the highest office of politics because God wants that person to be in the highest office of politics. God's will is never frustrated. Whoever gets elected in the next election, God is not going to pull his hair out and say, oh no, can't believe he made it into the White House. Right? It, it's hard to believe, but God is saying, this is, this is all a part of my plan. This is exactly what is supposed to be happening. Yes, Jack. You talking the the evil that we see in the world? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna answer your question. Give me a minute. I'll get there. Good question. Good question, very, though. Very good, question. good question, and I'm gonna get there because I know that's a question that comes up. So let's look at the sovereignty of God on the micro level now. Um, turn to uh, Proverbs 16. Because sometimes it's easy for Christians to think about that on the grand level, yes, God is in control of things. But look at Proverbs 16, verse 33. Who wants to read it? I'll let somebody else read it. 33? Yep. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision. Right? This is something that we would think is, is random. Right? Throwing dice is what they're doing with lots, right? They're not gambling, but it was a way that they made decisions in the Old Testament times, right? They would cast lots. And the lot is cast into the lap, but how it lands, God decides. He determines it, how it lands. These are just, these are dice that we're talking about. They cast, did they cast dice at the cross for his road? They did. They casted lots for, right, and so the, 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 the soldier that, that won that, that casting of lots, it was God's decision that he get it. Right? God decided that. Um, look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Um, you're probably familiar with this passage. It's a very comforting one that we often go to. Verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot fill the soul, kill the soul. Rather fear him who cannot destroy both soul and who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are you are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, apart from your father's will. Now, we're uncertain as to whether or not Jesus means not one bird will die or maybe not one will come and land, right? Flutter and land. But either way, he says not one bird will fall to the ground outside or apart from your father's will. God is in sovereign control of even every bird that we see out there. When a bird dies and falls out of the tree, that is not outside of the will of God. You know, R.C. Sproul uh, famously said, most people have heard this quote, there's no such thing as a maverick molecule, right? Because if there's one single molecule that is outside of the absolute control of God, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not omnipotent. And if God is not omnipotent, then God is not infinite. And if God is not infinite, then God ceases to be God. There is no God. He's simply a bigger version of ourself, really. Um, so God is in control of, on a macro level, but God is in control of all things, even on a micro level, right? Yes? So if God is to do something like randomness, but with a purpose, right? We're talking in the sense of the birds. Yes. He can also control the lifespan of the bird, right? Yes. It doesn't change the outcome that he knows when it's going to die. Yes. Does that make sense? For yes. Because yes. I mean, I, and I, I had a discussion a long time ago with Randy about even his pulling up the grass, but I'm thinking it's a big thing if God purposefully without even touching the grass knows how it's supposed to grow mm-hmm. and just spread over the earth. It's still within his will for the thing to work that way. That's right. It doesn't fall outside of his will. That's right. Does that make sense what I'm trying yes, to Yes, it does not. Even things that, that are seemingly random, exactly. things that appear random, are within the sovereign will of God. They are within the sovereign control of God. Um, so also, evil that we see in the world. Um, go over to, let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 45, verse 7. This is God talking. And he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Right? Did you catch that, Jack? That answers your question, right? Let me read that again. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God says, I create calamity. And uh, we, we can struggle with that sometimes. Um, where, I, where, where this was really talked about, this was really talked about, even on national news it was being talked about, was 9-11. Right? And everybody is trying to provide an explanation. What happened? And sadly, there were ministers out there saying, 
This was outside of God's control. God had no idea this was going to happen. God was just as shocked about this as you and I were. Well, what kind of a God is that then? Why is he why do we pray to him? If this is outside of his control, that's not comforting to me. Um, but people struggle with, but God can't be in control. But the Bible says God creates calamity. Because let's think about it. As bad as 9-11 was, right? It was horrible. What is 9-11 in comparison to the Great Flood? 3,000 people died on 9-11. How many on the earth died in the Great Flood? Men, women, children, infants. I mean, they were all floating, banging on the ark, possibly scraping on it, let us in. It would have been a horrific scene. Or the millions at the Holocaust. The millions at the Holocaust, right. Um, So when we say, no, God can't be behind these horrific events, well, look at the flood, right? God is behind horrific events that take place. God says, I create calamity. Um... I am the Lord who does all these things. Um, Book of Job. Turn to the book of Job. Now let me ask you this. Who brought all of the problems? I mean, thinking about the story, right? When we talk about the story of Job, right? Who do we blame? Who, Who brought all of the turmoil into Job's life and caused all of that. Who did that? The devil, right? Ah, more than allowed, I think. Look at, uh, look at Job. There's a little verse at the end of Job that we tend to sort of psychologically block out, right? Job 42. Job 42, verse 11. Then came to him, to Job, all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. We don't catch that verse very often, do we? All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now, we understand, and this is where we can start to go, wait a minute, what are you saying? The devil is the one who directly did it, right? The devil is the one who did it. But the devil could not have touched Job had God said no, right? So the reality is, is not God behind everything that happened to Job. Right? God says, yes, do it. Job does it. Offered him up. I mean, he was like, right. I can't present to you Job. Right. Yeah. Bragging about Job. And Job understood it. You read the book of Job. Job vents his frustration toward the right person, not the devil. Why is God doing this to me? You know, what, what, what is he accusing me of? Job is frustrated. Right? Um, he understands that... that God is behind all of this. Now, it doesn't mean, and this is where we have to be careful, 
that God is not the author of sin, right? Sin and evil do not originate with God. And the reason we, we say it that way, now God foreordained evil to come into the world. He did, right? When, when Satan rebelled against God, God wasn't surprised by that. He knew that was coming. And he could have, when Satan rebelled, God could have just snapped his finger and caused him to disappear and destroyed him, right? He could have. He could have destroyed the devil rather than just casting him down to the garden for him to tempt Adam and Eve. But he doesn't do that, right? Because God has, ultimately, this is what we always have to understand, God is good, God is good, and he is wise, and God does everything for what? His glory. For his glory and our good. Which means that if those things are true, it must mean that there is a good purpose for which evil exists in the world. And God uses evil in the world for his glory and for our good. Yes, Jack. No, God does not delight in, in the suffering that we go through. Um, but God foreordains it. Here's, here's, here's an il- illustration that, that I always like to use. Right? Um, a very razor-sharp knife or razor blade in the hands of a four-year-old is what? Terrifying. Dangerous, right? Stop. Don't move. Bring that to me slowly, right? Because we know they could hurt themselves, they could hurt other people. But a razor-sharp scalpel in the hands of a trained surgeon is good, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. When the surgeon... I mean, let's, let's assume he is a decent, morally upright person. When a surgeon has to perform surgery on somebody... Does he delight in that? Does he say, oh, goody, somebody got into a car accident and now I get to operate on them? You know, he probably does wish, you would hope, that, you know, I would prefer that this person wasn't having to go through this. It doesn't bring me joy to bring this person in their mangled mess and I'm going to have to try to fix them and hopefully can fix them, right? So God doesn't delight in evil, but evil exists in the world for a good end. And here's one good end, is that in the end, God does everything for his glory. And God is most glorified when we know him. The more we know God, the more God is glorified. Right? And there are, God could not be fully known apart from sin. Because had sin not entered the world, that sin not enter the world. Let's say Adam and Eve have never sinned. They, they always obeyed that law. They never sinned. Adam and Eve would never understand the mercy of God. They would never understand the forgiveness of God. Right? They would never understand the justice of God. They would never understand the wrath of God. They could never fully know God apart from sin entering into the world. And God is the greatest good that exists in the universe. He's the greatest good that exists. 
And God creates, and this is what's important to know, God doesn't create because he's lonely. He doesn't create human beings because he's lonely. He creates human beings because he desires to share his goodness with someone outside of himself. But we cannot fully know the goodness of God apart from sin entering into the world because we cannot fully know God, right? So God allows, foreordains evil to enter the world. And it's always for our good so that we might know him more, so that we might see how the good shepherd carries us through the dark valleys. Um, And it's for his glory. It's for our good and for his glory, right? And so in the end, Job understands you know, who's behind everything that happened to him. But he recognizes that he's God, right? He is God. And this is, this is such an important doctrine. This is core to um, Reformed theology. And it's important because it's comforting, mm-hmm. right? Um, I once was watching uh, years ago um, uh, some preacher on TV I can't even remember what it was like one of those TBN shows. This was years ago, but it's always stuck with me because I heard this even before I came to reform theology. And it may, I, I agreed at the time. But this woman called in with a question and this guy on TV sitting on like this gold chair. And she, she basically says, you know, my daughter was killed recently in a car accident. She was driving through a, a red a, driving through a light. Someone ran a red light and killed her. And I'm just, I'm really struggling with being angry with God. And I don't know how to deal with this, right? It's really shattered my faith. And his response was, look, you, have, you cannot blame God for this because God had nothing to do with that. How is that comforting? Why pray to a God who can't control something as simple as a car running a red light? It just, why pray for safety then when people travel? Why pray for people's salvation if God can't do anything about it? You know, why pray for healing? Um, why pray for our government if God is powerless to do these things? It's, that's not comforting. Right? Um, so God is in control of all these things. Um, that doesn't mean that we are puppets that God is moving around on a string. That's, that's what's called fatalism. And some people can think that. Like, oh, so we're just like chess pieces on a chessboard that God is just moving around. No, we're not. We are not. We are, and I love R.C. Sproul's term, we are free moral agents, right? We don't have a free will, we'll t- right? We talked about that last week. We don't have a free will because we are dead in our sins, We are blind to the gospel. We are not capable of submitting to the law of God, according to Romans, right? We don't have the freedom to choose for God. Not that anything is preventing us from it. See, when we talk about that, sometimes people think, oh, so if someone wanted to choose for God, God won't allow them if, no, that's not what that means. This is where Luther got it right in his famous book. I'd highly recommend The Bondage of the Will. He talked about the fact that the human will is bound by our own sin nature. We have bound ourselves. We, 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 we cannot reach for God because we are bound by our own sin. Not only are we bound by our own sin, we have no desire to reach for God. Even if we could, we don't want to. 
unbelievers do not want God, right? So we don't have a free will, but we are free moral agents. In other words, we have our own mind, we make our own decisions, we are responsible for our own actions, and we bear the consequences of our own actions because God doesn't make us sin. We choose to sin. God doesn't move our hands and make us do things. We choose to do those things. But nonetheless, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, there is the human responsibility, and then there's the sovereignty of God. And how these two things meet together is really a mystery. It's kind of like the Trinity, right? We can talk about the Trinity. We can define the Trinity with all of these great definitions. Um, and uh, if you're not sure, re- watch a, what is that? What, Lutheran satire, right? I'll send you a video that just gives you a great definition of the, the Trinity. But we can define it. We can talk about it. We can study it. But let's face it. At the end of the day, we really don't understand it. Why We can't understand how one God simultaneously exists as three persons, right? They are, that are inseparable from one another, yet at the same time are distinct from each other. Right? That is, that is just, that's beyond our comprehension. We accept it in faith. So how the complete sovereignty of God and human responsibility come together, ultimately, we can't answer that question. It, it's, a, it's a mystery. Um, but to trust what's that? On our own yes. But we see it in Scripture so clearly. I'll show you one of the clearest examples where we see the sovereignty of God and human responsibility just banging into each other. Look at Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. And this is the story of, you know, the, uh, the, the exodus. And, of course, you've got, you've got all of the, the plagues that go on, right? The, uh, the plagues, the ten plagues, ending with the Passover, the crossing the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 7, verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? The guy was so stubborn. Why? Look at chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. He hardened his heart. Pharaoh's responsible for his own actions, right? He hardened his own heart. Look at the same chapter, verse 32. Again, but Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. In the end, when God drowns him in the Red Sea, he deserved it. Right? He kept hardening his heart. What, what was that? You said verse 32, what chapter? Eight. Exodus 8. Oh, I was like in 7. I was like, it stopped at 8.32. And then look at chapter 9 now, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Whoa. God hardened his heart. So Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but yet we see that God also hardens his heart. Uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. Isn't that a hardening that you can't return from? That's right. Mm-hmm. Because God's will, God will always accomplish His will. Right? When God determines to do something, we read that in Isaiah, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So he hardened his own heart. 
Then chapter 10, just a couple verses later. I'm sorry? So it's got to be the hardest hurt ever. Then chapter 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. I have hardened his heart. Then again, same chapter, verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then again, same chapter, verse 27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then again, chapter 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right? We see this over and over again. The last time we see it is chapter 14. After they, uh, they leave and they go to the Red Sea, chapter 14, verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So what we see, so when we talk about when we talk about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and human behavior, here's what we know. We are not puppets, right? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God doesn't make us sin. Right? We, choose, we choose to sin. We are not puppets. We, we are free moral agents. We have our own mind. We make our own decisions. And we, we reap the consequences of our own actions. Yet somehow, what Scripture tells us, somehow is behind and underneath everything that we do and everything in, that happens in this world lies the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God lies behind and underneath everything that happens in this world and everything that we do. There's no such thing as luck. Nothing happens by chance. There's no such thing as a coincidence, right? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, right? Um, so even when we talk about evil in the world, because let's face it, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Right? We talk about, well, what about, so like, God is even behind evil. Well, we talked about the flood. We talked about Job, right? Um, or even, you know, you could talk about the Babylonian captivity, for example, or the, 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 the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. If you study that, the Babylonians were brutal to their captives. I mean, they were known for putting metal rings through their captives' noses, putting a chain to them, and then linking them together by their nose and making them walk all the way back to Babylon. And yet, what do we read in the Old Testament? Who was it that brought the Babylonians against the Israelites? God did. God did to punish them. Now, of course, we recognize that, well, but that's justice. Um, but at the same time, they weren't all sinners, right? Yes, I mean, they we're, were. well, you're right. <laughs> But they weren't all rebellious against God. Let me right. word it that way. They weren't all rebellious against God because we read about Daniel. And where's Daniel? In Babylon, right? Daniel in the lion's den. Right. Shadrach, right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, not everybody who's taken into captivity was rebellious against God. Uh, but nonetheless, it is God who brings the Babylonians against the, uh, the, the nation of Israel. Yes, Jack. It means that God, it, sin and evil, good question, originate with Satan. 
right? Because when we talk about when we talk about who is the author of sin, authorship implies origination. Where does it begin? Sin does not begin with God. Sin begins with Satan. Evil begins with Satan. But yes, God foreordained it. God foreordained it. Does that so, make sense? Yeah. Okay, but I have a, I think I have another question. Sure, go ahead. So, um, so, but God made sin available before Satan sinned? Well, see, sin is not like a substance that okay. you can grab onto, right? Sin is, is an action. It's a behavior. It's what we do, right? So it's not that God makes it available, Satan is the first one that sins against God. He rebels against the authority of God, right? Um, and and God foreordains for that to be. So he foreordains sins, but it does not originate with Right. Okay. And, and that's an important word because when we say that, we're not saying that God made Satan rebel. He didn't cause Satan to rebel. To foreordain means it was the will of God that that take place. It was within his will that that happened. And God simply wills things into existence. When God creates, he simply wills things into existence. It is his will, but he doesn't cause it. He doesn't move Lucifer to do that, but he foreordains for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, again, kind of like talking about the Trinity— that's about as close as we can get to understanding what happened there. Uh, Matthew. But God, he cannot sin. That's correct. God cannot sin because God cannot violate his own character. Exactly. All of the laws of God, all of the laws of God are simply a reflection of the moral character of God. And God cannot violate his own character. God cannot oppose his own will. So God cannot sin and does not sin. Jack. Jack. Jack, can I, can I say something to you? Just to see if I'm following where you're going. I think one of our problems with understanding is that we understand someone's will to be like, what we only do what we want to do and what makes us happy. God's will is not the same. He just does not delight in everything that is in his will. Right. You know, like we say, does that make sense? You're looking at me like I'm not making sense. <laughs> when you say it's my will, you're saying I want to do that and I think it's a good thing and I it brings me pleasure. And, and God, at least in bodily form, in the second person of the Trinity, is tangible as well. Um, he can be felt and, and grabbed. But God is pure good. He is holy, holy, holy. And the devil is the complete opposite of that. He is evil, evil, evil. He is pure evil. And God is pure good. Yes. Yeah, Thinking. It's almost like any action that is being done contrary to the will of God is sin because Satan will always, and this is the, the compromise right. of your freedom, right? You get to do, but he, his choice or was always to do the opposite of what God is, right? 
And that's where our choice comes in, but we don't really have a choice because we gravitate towards our own our sin all the time. That's right. our nature right. of being sinners. Right? right. So without God, we I'm reading about Pharaoh, but we would have done we would have acted exactly We would have done the same thing. And I think that at one point because we read also how he felt, I'm thinking about God hardening his heart. That's when you, you go so far away from God that God doesn't have any other option. Right. Because I think there's a verse that God talks about he will make it work. I forgot to say somewhere in the Revelation. Yeah, he's going to make it even, like, they're talking about he's going to make it even worse for them in their depravity. I forget exactly how it is. And that's, they're given a deprived mind. Yeah, that's exactly Oh, you're talking about, yeah, right, yeah, Romans that, 1. Yeah, so that's how I read Pharaoh. It, he went beyond the grace of God. He stepped right. outside. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. Even, right. It's almost like he recognized sin and it's like, no, I, I'd rather have sin against you than do what you want. Right. What mm-hmm. can God do then? Right, yeah. Does that make sense? What I'm yes, it does. Yes, John. I was thinking too about coming down with you know evil and the little and all that. I mean, Judas is kind of another example of that. Judas is another great example, right? I mean, he he not... he was the son of perdition, prophesied about from the Old Testament, right? So Judas had no choice but to fill that role for which he was created and brought into this world. There had to be someone to betray the Son of Man. It was foreordained from eternity past that that happened. Now, that doesn't mean Judas is not responsible for his own actions. He is. He sinned. But nonetheless, God foreordained it. Here's a great verse that that I was going to, right? Because when we talk about evil in the world, the bottom line is this. There was no greater evil that was ever committed than crucifying the Son of God. Because... You know, we can talk about people on death row that are there for a crime they didn't commit, and that happens sometimes, right? But we cannot say that that they've never committed any crime or that they've never done anything wrong. Here was a man who had committed no sin. No sin. There, there There was no greater miscarriage of justice than in the crucifixion of Christ. And yet, look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, right? There's the culpability. You crucified him. He's talking to the, he's talking to the Jews. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you all. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. 2.23. Well, that one's a good one too. But 2.23, this Jesus delivered up, listen to this, according to the definite, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men according to the definite plan. God did this. God the Father did this. We, we lack the mental capability to figure out how this right. is. Yes, on the, right. On the good side of the result, right? That's, right. But, but you, That's you see both, right here in this one sentence, you see both juxtaposed against each other, right? You see the, the sovereignty of God and human culpability. 
whom you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Peter said, you did this. You are guilty for innocent blood. But nonetheless, this was God who foreordained it. Right? Jesus, in the garden, he's asking, can you take this cup from me? Right. Because he already knew him. Yeah. He said, your will not. Yeah. Yeah. In, in his humanity, he's really struggling. He's, he is human. He feels pain. And in his flesh, in his humanity, he's thinking, I don't want to do this. I am terrified. But at the same time, Jesus never sinned, which means that he never balked against the will of God the Father. So at the end of the day, he says, but let your will be done and not mine. Right? Yes. He was under such right. Yes. So could it, is this possible? Would Jesus have, even though he did the will of God, he had, he hated things during that time? During he, what, that well, he hated sin. Yeah, so he hated sin. He but hated evil in the world. No, because hatred is a sin. Yes. Now, he became angry with people, yeah. uh, but it was a righteous a anger. Okay. Um, because anger in itself, as an emotion, is not a sin. Because God gets angry. Yeah. Um, the problem is with human beings, 99.999% of the time, when we get angry, it's usually in sin. Yeah. Um, it's usually because our pride has been hurt, right? Or we feel slighted or we weren't treated the way, I don't know, we think people should treat us or whatever. Or we're just annoyed by people because we lack patience, which is another sin, right? So we combine our sins, the lack of patience, and then we get angry, um, right? But, but Jesus, Jesus did get angry. I mean, throwing over the tables in the temple, that angered him. But that was a righteous indignation, right? He was like, this is a temple of the living God, it ought to be treated with reverence. And he was angry, and and he had every right to be angry and to do what he did. But um, the, it was not part apart from his rationality. He fully understood what, what he was doing. Sure, it's yeah. Not like he just lashed out and let everything go. No, like that is something totally different. It was very measured. Yes. Right. It was very measured. He did not lose control. I just want to make sure so we don't justify our yeah. emotional temper tantrum. I don't know. Whatever. Right. You know what I'm saying. Most of the times, our, our anger outbursts cannot be justified. Um, yes, Jack. So, with the idea of the circumvasion thing, and we're going to... Wait, I can't move your... Sorry. With the idea of the circumvasion, we are programmed to do whatever God needs us to do. Is it really up to prayer? No, we're not programmed. That's what I was saying. We're not, we're not programmed. We're not robots. We have a free moral agent. We are free moral agents. We, we make our own decisions. God is not moving us. We are not programmed to do certain things. Um, and that's where, again, we can't fully understand this, right? We can't, we can't fully understand this. Um, because if we try to, if we try to come up with a rational explanation that makes sense in our mind will ultimately end up going down the road of heresy. Right? Um, and what comes to mind is a, a, a liberal theologian by the name of Clark Pinnock who passed away, but he, he wrote a book in the late, in the late uh, 1990s called The Openness of God. And his theology has come to be known as open theism, and, uh, and it is still popular, and it's alive and well today. But Clark Pinnock argued 
that God does not know the future. God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, he might kind of know simply because Clark Pinnock argued in his book that God, God is um, omnipresent, right? And he is all-powerful. And so God might know what you're going to do tomorrow if you, if you say it out loud, right? Or, or, or if you think it in your mind, right? He can read your mind. If, he, if you think in your mind, tomorrow, I think I'm going to go to the beach. Then God knows what you're going to do tomorrow. Um, because, you know, he, he, he read your mind. He heard your thoughts, right? Um, but, uh, but, but ultimately, you know, Clark Pinnock would say that at, at that split moment when the drunk driver ran through a red light and crashed into someone else and killed them, God had no idea that was going to happen. He, he was completely shocked by it. Well, here, here's, here's, what, here's what Clark Pinnock, the reason Clark Pinnock, and I'll, I'll answer your question, but the reason Clark Pinnock does that is because Clark Pinnock wants to preserve free will. We have a free will. We are not puppets. We are not, God is not moving us like chess pieces on a chessboard, right? Yeah, so rationally, Clark Pinnock argued this, and it is logical, but it's biblically wrong. Yeah. Clark Pinnock argued that if God knows the future, even the distant future, right? In other words, here's the question. Here's the question. Let me ask, let me let me start by asking a question. Does God know? Does God know what you're going to be doing five years from now, mm-hmm. on February 21st at 1 p.m.? Yes. The answer yes. is yes. Right? We would say Orthodox Christians would say yes. Here, here's the follow-up question. Here's the follow-up question. Can the future be different from what God knows it to be? No. 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 Then the future is predestined. Right. It's pre- See, so Clark Pinnock would say, if that's true, then we don't have a free will. If my future is foreordained, predestined, if my future cannot be different from what God knows it to be, then I don't have a free will, and I'm simply programmed to do that. So Clark Pinnock argued, in order for us to have a free will, God can't know the future. God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So how do you explain Bible prophecy? He argued that, well, you see, God is much bigger than we are, and he's able to manipulate historical events, and he can manipulate people in such a way to bring about his plan, but ultimately, God doesn't know the future if we truly have a free will. The problem is there are so many passages in the Bible that absolutely contradict that. Yeah. You know, that God knows yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Did he not right? read That's the actually, story of the birth of Christ, how all those planets and the stars had to and, <laughs> and using the logic of Jonathan Edwards, if God doesn't know the future, then God is not infinite. Exactly. Because to be infinite means to be without limits. And if God is not infinite, then God ceases to be God. And there is no God. I don't know. Multiple hands went up. I think Carlos was up first. I think so. Go ahead. Okay. So with with the infinite sovereignty, omniscient, omnipresent, all the omnis of God, it it does beg the question for some people, what's the point of prayer then? Right. Great question. And 
That's a good one. Right? <laughs> That's always a good answer, Marco. <laughs> and, and, I, and I agree with that. And in fact, I think the, the, the question is so important that um, I, I researched it when I was in seminary. You take various classes where you know, the professors uh, want you to write a big paper, and they'll let you pick a topic. They have to approve it, but you pick a subject. And, and I took a class on the study of the Gospel of Luke, a seminary course um, with uh, Robert Stein. It was an excellent course. And uh, um, one thing I discovered studying the Gospel of Luke is there are several important themes that run through the Gospel of Luke. And one of those important themes is Luke talks more about prayer than any of the other four Gospels. Um, there is more verses and passages dealing with prayer in Luke than any of the others. And uh, so I wanted to study prayer. Why pray, and how does prayer relate to the sovereignty of God? And here's, what, here's the answer that I came down with. Number one, Margaret was right, because God commands it. Right? In the end, if God were to command you, if Jesus appeared to you in physical bodily form and said, I want you to walk down the street, and I want you to share the gospel with every person you come across. But here's the catch. No one is going to believe you. Would you do it? Yes. Yes. Right? Jesus. Right? Oh, yes, sir. Right? I'm going. Doesn't matter that nobody's... Right? Now we understand the prophets, right? That's what God told Ezekiel and Isaiah, right? I want you to speak for me. He says, he says to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Keep reading the chapter. And God says, go and proclaim, but understand they will have ears that cannot hear, eyes that cannot see, right? Nobody is going to listen to you. But Isaiah says, I'll do it anyway. Right? Because God commands me. Where's that Isaiah chapter 6. Right? So Isaiah does it anyways. So it, it is about obedience. That's number one. Number two, prayer is more for us than it is for God. Prayer strengthens our faith, and it is primarily a way of... Dis- it, prayer, first and foremost, is worship. It really is. Prayer is worship. Because when we pray, first of all, we are acknowledging that God knows more than we do. We're acknowledging that there is no one else in this world that can help me. That's why I'm coming to you, right? I am coming to you for help because I know you can help me. It, prayer is the best way. It really is. Prayer is the single most significant way that a Christian demonstrates humility before God. To get on your knees and on your face before God and say, help me, right? That glorifies God and pleases him because here is the subject of the king bowing in his presence and saying, help me. It, it is the most significant way to display humility before the king. So, so, so that's, that's the other reason. But here's, here's the third reason. This really gets to your question. The sovereignty of God and human responsibility, right? Jesus had to die on the cross, but somebody had to crucify him. God uses, God uses secondary causations to bring about his will, right? So, for example, it was the will of God that Job suffered, but God doesn't do it directly. He uses the devil to do that. He uses secondary causation to do that. It is the will of God, even in creation, that, that we have water. Now, God 
could cause rain to fall on the earth in various parts of the earth every day of the year without clouds, couldn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But he uses clouds. God uses secondary causation to bring about his will. That's just the way God works. He enjoys doing that. Now, he doesn't always do that, right? When God, when God brought locusts onto, onto Egypt, he just made locusts appear. When he brought frogs, he just made frogs appear. So sometimes God just works directly and supernaturally. Jesus walking on water, that was supernatural, right? Jesus turning water into wine. God doesn't need grapes to make wine. He just made wine, right? In fact, he really didn't even need water. I mean, honestly, Jesus could have just said, you know, bring me those empty jars. Oh, look, there's wine, right? Um, God uses secondary causation. Jesus, great example as well. You know, it's interesting that, that sometimes Jesus touches people's eyes and they become healed. At other times, he says, put mud on your eyes. Why with the mud? Because he's God. He does what he wills, when he wills, to whom he wills, and he answers to no one. Right? So, what I'm getting at is this. God desires to use the prayers of his people as a secondary causation to bring about his will. To bring about his will. So is that why some people, when they're in a crisis of faith and then they pray, they think that they can change God's mind or direct God's mind the way that they want things to... Yes, we cannot alter the will of God, but here's how Spurgeon explained it. And if you want a great prayer, a, a book on prayer, the best book I've ever read on prayer is by Charles Spurgeon called The Power of Prayer. And of course, Spurgeon was, an, was a, an ardent, he believed totally in the sovereignty of God. Yet, amazingly, Spurgeon also believed in the power of prayer. He actually says in the book, he believes prayer causes things to happen. He believes that it, when God's people don't, things don't happen because God's people don't pray. Yet at the same time, he also believes that God sovereignly ordains that God's people pray. He chooses to work through the prayers of his people to bring about his sovereign foreordained will. In other words, God has a plan. And when we pray, when God commands us to pray, that is God's way of inviting us to be participants in his plan and to bring about his plan through the power of prayer. Um, at the end of the day, again, we can't fully wrap our minds around the way prayer and the sovereignty of God works. And this is where it comes down to faith. Here's what I believe. On the one hand, I believe from the Bible, prayer does work. Prayer works, right? Because um, even Jesus, remember the disciples, why couldn't we cast out that demon? He said, that kind of demon can only be casted out by fasting and prayer, right? In other words, he's saying because you didn't pray, right? Prayer works, but at the same time, God is sovereign. How those two things go together, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me, but I do believe that when we pray fervently, mm -hmm. things happen, right? Mm -hmm. Things happen. Bobby. Do you believe that God also, he's the one that actually creates the secondary causations? Yes. Everything is within the sovereignty of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. He even, he even foreordains a secondary causation. Even that question, Bobby. Yeah. Eric. He's trying to get Kelsey. Oh, Kelsey. How come usually I hear everybody say, I would want God to be in control of me, but you say, like, we're not like puppets moving around. But most people are like, like, evolutionists. Um, 
exactly what they think, but they usually say, like, I don't want to be in control of God. Yeah. That they don't want God to be in control of us. Yeah, because as human beings, we naturally want to be autonomous. We, we want to be... Oh, we, we, as human beings, we naturally want to be in charge of ourselves. We, we want to be our own God and uh, be in control of, of, of everything that we do. But the reality is God is the one who is in control of all things. It's kind of like being a kid. As a kid, you don't like your mom to tell you to clean up your room and get right. to when you feel like it. Right. And it's true. It's true. We are naturally rebellious against God. Tommy. I just want to simplify it because I think in terms of how it applies to me, um, no parent wants to be taken for granted. Hmm. Neither does God, right? Your children will be fed, but it's nice to hear them appreciate what we're having for dinner today. Can we have this and this? And I think in, just to make it really small and easy to understand, for the same reason, God wants us to ask for things. Right. That's the purpose of prayer because... I, I don't want to be, you know, someone always expect me to do the same thing, even if I'm going to do it. It defeats the whole purpose. I want to, I want to share with you, but allow me to share with you because you want to have it. Yes, God wants us to demonstrate our humble dependence on Him. Yes. And He wants us to come to Him as our Heavenly Father and, and make our request, you know, Daddy, Heavenly Father, I, I need this. I need that. I need help with whatever it is. And, um, and, you know, God always answers our prayer, right? But like a parent, sometimes he answers no, but God never ignores us. He always answers our prayer, and he gives us what we truly need. And oftentimes, like kids, we don't really know what we need. We think we know, but God knows what we truly need. God asks for a Corvette. Right. 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 Well, it's like, the, it's like the kid every morning saying, can I have chocolate chip cookies for breakfast? No. Right? That's, that's not healthy. Here, have some scrambled eggs. Well, I don't want eggs. Well, too bad. So right? they sort of the window tonight? Yeah. <laughs> Bobby. It's not working. Okay, so explain. Uh-huh. Then the scripture that says, for we don't know how to pray, and the Holy Spirit prays the groanings too deep right. for us to even understand. Right. So where does that prayer come from? That prayer comes from not, yes, that's right, it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, because there are times, and we've all been there, right? When we don't, we don't know what God's will is, you know, um, in, in this particular situation. I mean, just in a practical level, you know, I've had, I've had people come to me over the years, soldiers, you know. Man, I've got, I've got a choice of duty stations. I, the Army is saying I could go here or I could go there, and I don't know which one to take. I mean, they both have pros and cons, you know, and, I, and just I, I don't know. Pray about it, right? And, and that's where you just say, you know, God, just the Holy Spirit intervenes in those situations and essentially prays on our behalf. Um, and I do think there is a, definitely a spiritual dimension to prayer. Yes? Remember the three things that we talked about, which was <coughs> study, pray, and seek God's will. Mm-hmm. That's right. Study, study, pray, and seek God's will. So yeah, we need to be studying God's uh, studying God's word. I mean, to know God's will, yes, you need to look at Scripture. Uh, you need to pray, um, absolutely. Um, Next one. But prayer, prayer does work. I firmly believe that. Um, you know, you read in the Book of Acts when the the apostles were in prison and were told that the church was praying all night for them, and then what happens? The doors are flung open and Peter walks out. Right? 
That's because the church is praying. Um, and, and Luke writes Acts as well. So Luke and Acts, by the way, put those together. When you combine those, there is a theme of prayer that runs all the way through the book of Luke and Acts. So if you ever want to study prayer, start looking up every verse, every passage that has to do with prayer in the Gospel of Luke and Acts. There is a ton there. And then write them all out, string them all together. Uh, it's an amazing study to do. Yeah, Jason. Um, not really a question, more just kind of the only way I've been able to get my head wrapped around the sovereignty of God really has to do with the fact that what you touched on Sunday was our um, example of sheep, right? And you touched on it a little bit, but let there be no mistake, sheep are some of the dumbest animals. We are. The yeah, sheep are dumb. Planet. It's not a compliment <laughs> that God calls us sheep. They're so just blockheaded, and our example of that is very good. And so when it comes down to a father who knows um, what's going to happen before we know about it, I think about it from a father's standpoint of, like, don't touch the hot pan. That's going to burn you. Like, you know, we know certain things within our own little scope of parents well beyond our our kids do, even up until some pretty old ages. Um, to where we may have an insight that they may not have. And God's insight is obviously infinitely larger than ours. And so that's really the best example that I can really come up with is we are but humble sheep we are. that know very little and are best described as children and just trying to bound our way through the fields and says, nope, don't go that way. Yeah. So, so yeah. Jesus, being fully God, knew the will of God, knew the heart of God, knew everything that he was going to face, but yet... He still, though he knew it all, he decided to pray anyways. Yes. So for no other reason, that should be enough for us to want right. to pray. Is if he already knew the right. outcome and he still decided right. to pray, right? And, and he was strengthened and, in his right. yes. Because part it does that too. Part of that is is that our our misunderstanding, and this is where I started with it. The prayer is more for us than it is for God. And, and I don't mean in that we, we get stuff from God. Because we tend to misunderstand prayer in, in that we tend to think the only time to pray is when you need something. But prayer is really just communing with God. It is talking with God. So when the Bible says Jesus prayed all night long, I don't think he sat there and went through a prayer list of, of please you know heal this person and heal that person. And it wasn't just a, 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 a eight-hour list of requests that he was making. He was dialoguing. He was talking to his heavenly father. He was just communing with him. That's really what prayer is. So when we talk about prayer, don't think, well, I don't know what to pray for. Just share your struggles with God. Share your thoughts with God. Just talk to him about what's going on in your life. He is your heavenly father and he wants to hear it. He wants to hear what's going on in your life. And yes, he already knows Right? Yes, he, and so you think, but God already knows. But again, think about a parent and a child, right? I can sit here and look out the window and watch my children make mud pies, right? Or I can watch them drawing something. And I know what they're doing, but when they come in and they want to tell me what they did, I want to hear it all, right? I want to listen to what they did, even though I know what they did. I still enjoy listening to them talk me through it, right? Mm-hmm. Having a conversation with them. God is the same way, right? He wants us to commune with him. Yes, Jack, and this will probably be the last question. I was going to say, this is going to be my last question. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was like 30 minutes. With the sovereignty and the infinite of God, 
does he feel not remorse, but just I don't know sadness I guess but just so can say. Can we grieve? Do we grieve him? God, God is grieved um, by the sins of people. Um, and there's a passage in Ezekiel that says that he does not delight in the death of the evildoer, right? Um, God doesn't get giddy when, when people go to hell or when people suffer. Um, and this is where we have to understand, uh, we talk about the transcendence of God, and there's another big word, but when we talk about the transcendence of God, we're saying that God is beyond our comprehension. We can't relate to God. Um, you know, there are some things, some aspects of God we can relate to, but let's face it, nobody in this room knows what it's like to be all-knowing, to know everything that is happening in every part of the world at every moment, at every single second, knowing every thought in every human mind. And we, that is, we cannot even comprehend what that would be like. We don't know what it's like to be eternal, to have existed Forever and ever and ever. God has always been. For billions and billions of years, God has always existed. That's beyond our comprehension. You know, what, what, what was he doing all that time before he created humanity? Um, I know Spurgeon's answer. Someone asked Spurgeon that question one time. Spurgeon said he was creating hell for people who pry where they ought not to pry. Right? Um, <laughs> So we can't, you know, we can't comprehend what it means to be all-powerful. You know, God simply willed the universe into existence. He didn't have to do it. He said, let there be a universe, and there it was. Let there be the sun, and there it was. That's, that's beyond our comprehension. So it is difficult for us to really wrap our minds around this whole sovereignty concept, right? God is everywhere at every moment um, in every part of creation he is all encompassing um, that's that's beyond you know we are literally like an ant trying to understand the internet I mean you know like an ant crawling on a computer screen like we there's no way we can comprehend this thing um, we can't comprehend God we can only get us What's that? Yeah, that's that's right. That's, that's right. And that's why heaven, heaven. You know, I've said this before. Heaven is, is is like church for all of eternity, right? What do we do in church? We learn about God, right? We will spend eternity learning about God, and guess what? We'll never get to the end because He's inexhaustible. For every question that He answers, there'll be more questions. Um, and our our little mind. Right? Trying to understand God is like trying to take a gallon of knowledge and pouring it into a shot glass of a brain. I mean, we're just, we're going to lose a whole bunch. Right? We just, we can't comprehend God. Um, but that is what brings us great comfort in knowing that, especially for the believer, right? Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of those who love him. So the comfort is this, no matter what we go through in life, Right? And we've all been through some tough things recently, right? I can't tell you how many times I've said, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't, if I wasn't a Calvinist, I'd have lost my mind a long time ago. I mean, I, I, I definitely would have lost my religion. Um, but you know, when you understand the sovereignty of God, 
then you understand that as a believer, as a believer, there is nothing, there is nothing that happens in the believer's life that is not first filtered through the loving fingers of God. Right? Nothing. I mean, I find so much comfort in that. No matter how crazy life may get, I know somebody's in control. I am so comforted to know somebody is in control of this crazy roller coaster, right? And he's got a plan, and he knows the end. And it's temporal. <laughs> and, and, and God, I may be frustrated with life at times. God is not. He is on his throne, and he is the king, and he is governing all of creation, all of redemptive history with a sovereign hand. And uh, I find out a lot of yeah. comfort in knowing that. So, well, good, uh, good question. Boy, this generated a lot of questions. Oh, that was good. Good oh, discussion. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and we can continue to talk about it or other things at, uh, over dessert and coffee. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are so, so thankful that you are sovereign, Lord. That, uh, that you are in control of our life and that uh, you have a plan for each of us, Lord. And uh, we know uh, that you are working all things for our good and for your glory. And we pray, Lord, that, um, that when we go through the dark valleys in life, that we will remember that. And that we will stay close to the shepherd and that we will follow your lead, knowing that you are always taking us to the green pastures and the still waters that are on the other side of the dark valley. And uh, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your sovereignty. And, um, and, uh, and Father, uh, through this, Lord, we also pray that by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would increase our faith, but also that you would increase our <laughs> desire to pray, Lord. We pray that you would give us the desire of Christ to just spend hours in prayer, just talking to you, communing, with you, Lord God. And, uh, and then we pray that you would be pleased to work through our prayers to bring about your sovereign will. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah. You were talking about finding comfort. I heard you work at Edward Air Force Base.